Our Parsha series is generally sponsored this year by Becky and Avi Katz, a family in memory of David Grossman. Our loading should be Lila Nishmas, Dovim Menachem Monosh. This morning's class is also co-sponsored by Judy Rosen in commemoration of the yurtzeit of her beloved husband, Marvin Rosen, whom we knew well, a wonderful person, Ali Melech Baruch Ben Ben Sion, his neshama shadav and aliyah. And by Sandy and Sidney Goldschmidt, memory of their parents, Hachaver Ephraim Ben Hachaver Moshe Yehuda, and Tzivya Bas Avram Matasyo and Moshe Ben Simcha, their neshama shadav and aliyah. And also this morning I was asked if we can include um, someone who's in need of a refuah, Shlema, Shandy, I don't have her name. Shendel Sarabas. I should have a refuah shleima, a complete and a speedy and a full recovery. Parshas Truma. I'm going to share with you something I already said last year because it's my favorite. It's a fantastic vort. And we'll begin with it. And also, you definitely forgot about it by now. So I have no hesitation. And it is from Rav Avram Simcha Mibarnav in the Sefer Hamra Tava. And he quotes the Baal Shem Tov. And he says the following. I don't think I read it to you last year. This year I'll read it to you. But Medrash Kishomi Yisrael Nasa Vinishma Miyad Amrasham Yisbarach. The Yikhuli Truma. Truma, our parasha, we now transition to the second half of the book of Shmos, and we turn to the world of the Mishkan. The instruction, the mandate, the mission to build the Mishkan, the description, dimensions, the materials of the uh, utensils, the furniture, the furnishings of the Mishkan, and then in Sefer Vayikra we'll get to the function in the, in the Mishkan. So Shmos is now transitioning, and the Medrash points out that this transition happens between the words Nasa and Ishma, immediately Hashem said, the Yikhuli Truma. The Jewish people stood under the chuppah called Har Sinai, and they said, Nasa and Ishma, we're in love, we're devoted, we're dedicated. Whatever it is you want, don't explain it to me, I don't need to know the reason. Just tell me what you want, I put your wishes before my own. Nasa and Ishma. And Hashem heard Nasa and Ishma, and he responded. What was his reaction? Nasa and Ishma, nice. The Yikhuli Truma, what's the connection between the two? V'yesh lavar, ki yesh kam ben yadam sheyesh lam chashkas halim abitari v'atvila, achein bevo'am al-mitzvah s'tzaka, azmonim es'atzmam amamonim chadav aleim. These people, you say, would you take up the daf yomi? Nasa v'nishma. Will you volunteer for the chesed committee? Nasa v'nishma. Will you help make the minion? Nasa v'nishma. Will you give and become a friend of BRS? Wow, did you see what the market did yesterday? I don't know, and I can't, and it's a fixed income, and the market plummeted. Nasa v'nishma, for davening, and for learning, and for chesed, and for shaking the lulav, and listening to the shofar, and hearing the megillah. Nasa v'nishma. It's time to get staka? Wow. Keshama nasa v'nishma, azama Hashem Yisbarach, v'yichuli truma. The Medrash says, when they said Nasa Vinishma, Hashem said, okay, let's test it. Nasa Vinishma, you ready to do anything? Take out your checkbook. I can say that to you. Others don't know what a checkbook is anymore. Take out your PayPal. Take out your PayPal, take out your Apple Pay, take out your Venmo, Venmo, take out your whatever it is. The Yikuli Truma, the Mishkan undoubtedly took all forms of cash transfer. Get Venmo to the Mishkan. So Hashem says, Nasa Venishma, lovely, that's so nice. Let's see how devoted and dedicated you are. Why do people have such a struggle to get staka? You know, in the Gemara, we've shared this many times, the word for money is Damim. 
It's our blood, sweat, and tears. We earned it. We worked for it. We sacrificed. We compromised. We gave of ourselves to earn that money. And now it's like you're asking for a piece of me. Nasa Vinishma, give me your kidney. And there are many who would sooner give their kidney than they would give to Tzedakah. So Hashem says, Nasa Vinishma, let's see. V'yikuli truma. Are you really devoted? Are you really engaged? And Marty Irvin says there are three ways that you can understand a person. Three ways you come to know a person. Bikisa, Bokoso, Ubekasa. Do they fly off the handle? Do they respond with rage? Do they get angry? How are they when they drink? In a couple of weeks, Rosh Chodesh Adar, in a couple of weeks, we'll find out a lot about some people. How are you when you drink? Bikoso. And lastly, Bikiso, with your wallet. You really want to know about somebody, see how they spend their money. You want to know what a shul values? Look at their budget. How much is on youth and on outreach and on adult ed? And what's spent on, look at someone's personal budget. If you want to know about a community and institution, look at that organization's budget. And when you see how people spend their money, you'll know everything. You try to recruit people to come to a shul event. Well, I can't, I can't get the babysitter and it's way too expensive and what you're charging for the thing. And then all over Facebook you see, Seinfeld was amazing. It was fantastic. I splurged, I was in the third row. It was amazing. Half the shuls, the Billy Joe Con, it's amazing. Nasa Venisha, Venishma, Vyikhuli Truma. Let's see your budget and then we'll know whether you really feel Venasa Venishma or not. We'll be able to examine you Bikiso, what's happening through your pocket. And then he throws in one other idea, we didn't mention this previously, which is if you look at Rashi and the words, V'yikhuli truma. Okay, let's start. Parshas Truma, page 444 in the Oracle's Tom bothered. Why is it not good enough to say, What do you need the word? Speak to the Jewish people and take from me Truma. What is Truma? Litrum in modern Hebrew. A Truma is a, a donation, a gift, a pledge. From all those who heart moves them to give, take my truma. truma. Take from me a truma. Rashi is quoting the Medjishtan Chuma. For me in my name. What is Rashi talking about? What does that mean? So you look at the Sif Chacham and he says, and so on. Li means lishma. Li lishmi. You have to do something lishma. When you make tzitzis, l'shem mitzvah tzitzis. And when you make tefillin, stam, l'shem mitzvah ksiva sefer Torah. You have to do things lishma with intent. With intent. Those who are signed up to our new WhatsApp groups return Friday into Erev Shabbos. <laughs> Each week we offer another suggestion and 15 minutes of learning about the beauty, the excitement, the anticipation of Shabbos. So last week's suggestion was that we do something for Shabbos and we introduce the words, the shame covered Shabbos, that we're doing it for Shabbos. You don't just set the table, you don't just shave, you don't just get dressed, you don't just get a haircut, you don't just make the food. You're not making the food on Arab Shabbos the same way you're making the food on a Monday night. Shame covered Shabbos. When we articulate, when we introduce, we direct our thoughts and we create a mindfulness, it transforms the experience. Says Rashi, li lishmi. This gift should be li lishmi. Which the Baal Shem Tov said, what it means is, when you get stuck, uh, 
Why are you giving that staka? It shouldn't be because someone tugged on your heartstrings, which is also true. We should have rahmanas. We should be refined and cultivated to have a sense of, of uh, compassion and sympathy and to want to relieve the pain of others. That's all wonderful and it's all good. But when we give tzedakah, you know why we're giving it? Lilishmi. It's a mitzvah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us to. This is how we're meant to allocate our funds. This is how we prove nasa v'nishma. This is how we express that we really are engaged, we really are devoted, that this for us is something which is, which is real. For something which is real. So let's take a look at this opening pasuk. So of course, everybody asks, everybody asks, what do you mean So the Imre Chaim, let's go back to Lilashmi for a moment, it has to be Lishma. you should give stuck. you say, L'shem mitzvah staka. You're doing it Lishma to be able to come close to Hashem, to emulate Hashem, to imitate Hashem. Li Lishmi. So the Imre the Vishnu who says, Lishmi is begamatria, lev sameach. Staka tzrichem lases belev sameach. Lishmi, Lishma, Lishmi, in God's name is the same gematria as a lev sameach, a happy heart. Don't have a fabis in the face and a frown and miserable. Don't give staka like someone taka is taking out your organ. <laughs> Give stucco with a smile. Give stucco with an open hand. Give stucco with a joy. It's the greatest pleasure that there is when you can allocate and you can help and you can use your resources to really testify to what your values and priorities and who you are. If you're going to give it already, don't give it begrudgingly. And don't give it with a hesitation. Do it with a joy and an enthusiasm and a lishma. And a lishma. Hashem, this is Nasa Vinishma. Because I'm the cheapest, most frugal person on the planet, and I don't spend, and I don't let. But you know what they asked? I'm joining, Lashmi, Lashma. This is my Nasa Vinishma Hashem. This is my Nasa Vinishma, the Yikhuli Truma I'm giving. Now, the question everybody asks the Yikhuli Truma. What do you mean, the Yikhu? What should it say? What should it say? The Yitnu. It's the famous question every first grader learns it. Not the Yikhu, take from me a pledge. But rather, v'yitnu. Everybody should give. You don't get up, yisker appeal, and say, everybody take for themselves a yisker pledge. You say, everybody please give a yisker pledge. So why is the Lashem the Torah, why is the Pasuk v'yichu rather than v'yitnu? V'yichu. So if you look at the Balaturim, the Balaturim famously says that the word v'yichu is a The Yitnu, rather, is a palindrome. Same both directions, because really when you give, you receive. So the word Yitnu is a palindrome. When you give, you receive. So Vayikhu, when you get staka, you are receiving meaning, you are receiving purpose, you are really getting the most out of it. Vayikhu, you're getting, you're taking, it's transformative to who we, to who we are. That's who we are. It's, they have to speak gently because you're about to ask for something. They have to give something. They have to give something. Okay. The Ramban, the Ramban says the following. It's a beautiful Ramban. It's his introduction to our Parsha, really introduction to the second half of the book of Shemos. What is the purpose of the Mishkan? Why are we collecting these funds? What is this appeal for? To build the Mishkan. And what's the purpose of the Mishkan? And why is the Mishkan now? 
What is its purpose? So the Ramban says, when Hashem spoke to us face to face, it was unprecedented and unparalleled revelation. He gave us the Asabras Hadibros. The Ten Commandments represent a succinct summary of all of Torah. Sadiqon famously says that these ten are the principles. You can fit the other 603 mitzvos in these ten. They represent all of Torah. And the Ramban says that this is similar to what we do to a conversion candidate. We give them a sampling, a smattering of Torah, of mitzvos, of halacha, and we ask them if they accept it. So when Hashem said, here are the Aseras Adibros, they represent. They are representative of the whole Torah. Nu, are you in? And we said, Nasa v'nishma. So from that moment, when Hashem said, here's a sampling, here's 10 out of 613, they are representative, they are categories through which all the others fit, do you accept? And we said, yes, we're in, Nasa v'nishma. And from that moment, there was a binding covenant. We became a covenantal community. A mamlachas kohanim and a goy kadosh. And a kadosh baruch who said, v'shamayatam brisi, that we are obligated to observe this promise, this pledge, this bris. So now how do we continue that feeling? How do we preserve that momentum? Har Sinai, Hashem spoke to us, revelation, spirituality. It was a transformational spiritual experience. We had a confidence. We were sure that He is here. He's involved in our lives. He has expectations of us. That we're here for a mission and a purpose. And then you leave Harsina and it dissipates. It disappears. How do we maintain it? How do we preserve it? How do we carry that momentum forward? How do we recreate it? And how do we revisit it? And how do we go back to Harsina? And says the Ramban, God says, you want to come back to Harsina? You want to recreate that experience of our intense, intimate rendezvous? You're going to build the Mishkan. And I'm going to be felt my presence in that, in that Mishkan. That's where we're going to connect. So what's the Mishkan, says the Ramban? You know what the purpose of the Mishkan is? The Mishkan is a place to revisit Har Sinai. And the core place within the Mishkan is where the Aron is. The Aron is the central part of the Mishkan. The Aron energizes and illuminates the Mishkan. As the Pasuk says, We're going to see this Pasuk shortly. The Aron is the first of the utensils and the Kaporas, the covering of that Aron, because the Aron energizes. The Aron is the on switch for the Mishkan. The Aron are the batteries. The Mishkan doesn't operate without its batteries. The Aron serves as its batteries. And we also have the shulchan, the menorah, the table, the candelabra. Moshe switches the order elsewhere. Vesoda Mishkanu says the Ramban. The secret, the power, the mystique of the Mishkan is that that same intense feeling of the presence of the Almighty that we had at our Sinai, we are capable of with a Mishkan. And similarly, the Mishkan or Mikdash Ma'at, a shul. Why do we have a shul? Gedavan in your home. Uncle Moshe told us, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, He's everywhere. 
I get down on my home, so what do I have to come to the shul for? Because we designate a place, a tangible, physical, material place in which we have designated for holiness, and it becomes energized, and it therefore, it therefore creates an environment and an atmosphere which breeds a connection with Hashem. You want to go back to our Sinai? You want to climb that mountain? You want to recreate that moment? The Mishkan, the Beis Knesses, the Shul. That is the Sod, that is the secret. The same language that's described that Ramban now invokes, the same language at our Sinai is the language that we have in the Mishkan, in the Mikdash Ma'at. It is the place of divine presence of Hashem. Rav Shechter in the Sefer on Parsha, the Rav Shechter on the Parsha, elaborates on this Ramban. And he says that B'nai Yisrael received the Luchos at Harsinai. And what are the Luchos called? The Luchos Ha? Bris. They're not just tablets. They're not just a tablet. They are the Luchos Ha Bris. They're a tablet that represent the covenant, the pledge, the promise, the commitment. And therefore the Mishkan is referred to the Mishkan Ha? Edus. The Luchan Ha Edus and the Mishkan Ha Edus of testimony. It's a place of houses the Luchos. The Gemara Yuman Dachnan Beis tells us that towards the end of the period of the first Beis HaMikdash, Yoshiyahu HaMelech took the Luchos, anticipating the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, he took the Luchos out of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, and where did he place them? In a special vault that was carved into Har Habayis, underneath the Temple Mount. It was constructed for this purpose by Shlomo HaMelech. Shlomo HaMelech prophetically knew there would be a time that we would have to rescue or save those luchos, and therefore he built a cavern, a little, a little vault in the Harabais, in the Temple Mount. There are stories told after 1967, we took back the old city, an archaeologist who was trying to go and rediscover, and there's all kinds of stories. It's unsafe, you're not supposed to go, he died, should someone else try? There's a little, the luchos are buried, says the Gemara in Yuma. And the Gemara brings the Machlokas Tanaim. Did the luchos remain there during the period of the second base of Mikdash, or were they removed and taken to Bavel? During the time of the Second Temple, where were those luchos? We're not going to mention it now. I think previously, and you can find it online, we gave a whole shir about where are the luchos today. And there are fascinating suggestions. Ethiopia, you can't imagine the suggestions about where are the luchos today. Where are they today? Not for now. But the Gemara has a machlokus tanaim. Were the luchos restored in the Beis HaMikdash? Were they underneath the Temple Mount? Were they taken to Bavol? And fascinating, the Rambam in Hilchos Beis HaBechira, uncharacteristically, the Rambam seems to paskin about a historical debate. The Rambam takes a stand and he says, according to the first opinion, that the luchos remained in that vault under the Temple Mount. Since when is the Rambam? In his Mishnah Torah, Yad HaChazaka, a halachic encyclopedia, why is the Rambam taking a position on a historical debate? The Rambam doesn't comment on history unless that history informs halacha. So what is halachic about where the luchos are today? So the Rav noted that the very fact that the Rambam renders a ruling about this machlokas is in itself an indication that he doesn't believe it's just historic, but he believes it's halachic. See, the machlokas revolves around the question of whether it's possible to have a Beis HaMikdash without luchos. Could there be a second temple if the luchos were in Bavel? Could you have an operate lahavdil? Could you operate an appliance, a machine, if there was no battery, if there was no electricity flowing to it. The luchos were the battery. The accepted opinion maintains that in order for the Beis HaMikdash to be invested with Kedusha, the Kedusha of Har Habayis, the Kedusha of Beis HaMikdash, draws from the luchos. The luchos ha'edus, hence the Mishkan ha'edus. So the second Beis HaMikdash, in order for it to have been holy, 
The luchas had to be there, albeit hidden underground. The Ramban quoted by the Ran in his commentary, not here on the Parsha, but on Masechus Megillah, claims that Kedushas Beis HaKinnis is similar to Tashmishe Mitzvah. The halacha is when it comes to an object that you used for a mitzvah. Sukkot, you're done with your lulav and esrog. What do you do with them? Do they have to go in shameless? Do they have to be buried? No, they can be thrown in the garbage. We happen to throw them in the garbage in as dignified a way as possible. So we wrap the esrog, the lulav, in its own plastic bag, and then we put that in the garbage. Because after all, this object which I used for the performance and fulfillment of a mitzvah, it'd be inappropriate to just throw it with the banana peels and uh, dirty diapers in the garbage. So I segregate it and I put it in the garbage in a more respectable way. But the halacha is that it can go in the garbage. The lulav and esrog can go in the garbage and the schach for my sukkah can go in the garbage because they're called hukzol mitzvah so. They were set aside for the purpose of a mitzvah and their value came from their performance of the mitzvah. They were tashmishe mitzvah. So during sukkahs they're used for a mitzvah, they have a holiness, they have a role, and when sukkahs ends and the mitzvah component of them disappears, dissipates, they now lose that whatever sanctity they had, and I can throw them in the, in the garbage. What about tefillin, Sefer Torah? When they're invalid, can I throw them in the garbage, even if I wrap them in 17 garbage bags? No. Why? What are they called? Not Tashmishe Mitzvah, but Tashmishe Kedusha. They're called Tashmishe Kedusha. They have an inherent holiness. They have an inherent sanctity. Why? Because they have the words of Hashem. Anything that contains the words of Torah has an inherent intrinsic holiness, not just a pragmatic or functional holiness. When we're done with its function, now you can throw it away, but an inherent holiness. Parenthetically, when Rav Shechter quotes this, not in his commentary on the Parsha, but in the Sefer Eretz Hatzvi, in the footnote, he points out, this is why you have a difference. What's the halacha of a Jew? Can they be cremated? What do they need to be? They need to be buried. A non-Jew, can they be cremated? Yes. Why? The non-Jew, the body of the non-Jew is Tashmishe Mitzvah. A non-Jew is obligated in the seven Noahide laws, and they use their body as a vehicle to live a virtuous life in the performance of those seven mitzvahs. But the Jew is not just Tashmishe Mitzvah, the Jew is Tashmishe Kedusha. Hashem's words are engraved in the Jew. Where? When? So Shechter points out, when we were all in the womb, and the Malach learned the entire Torah with us and caused us to forget it. Why did he cause us to forget it? The Beis Levi has a famous interpretation because he wants, if you're going to cause us to forget it, why teach it to us to begin with? And the answer is that when we learn it, it's something which is familiar to us. It's not foreign, it's not new, it's familiar. That there's a pintalayid inside every Jew who Judaism, Jewish values are familiar, even if they never had a Jewish education, even if they were never exposed to intense Jewish teachings. But the fact that every Jew was taught by the Malach in the womb creates a permanent imprint and impression on the heart of the Jew and makes us Tashmishe Kedusha. And therefore the Jew has to be buried. It's prohibited to get rid of a Jew as if they're just Tashmishe Mitzvah. So what about the base Knesses? What about a shul? Is it Tashmishe Mitzvah or Tashmishe Kedusha? Is it just functional, pragmatic? It's the place that we gather to learn the Daven. And God forbid if a shul is destroyed, you could throw away the materials, the walls, the bricks, and the mortar? Or does it have the holiness of Tashmishe Kedusha? That it has to be treated with, it has to be buried with the Geniza Chamura, it has to be treated with the highest sanctity. So, said the Rav, a base Knesset enjoys the same status it enables a more enhanced performance of the mitzvah of tefillah, 
On a Daraisa level, once a base Knesset falls into disuse, will no longer be used for a mitzvah, it doesn't retain its Kedusha. Now, one could have argued that the term Tashmisha mitzvah includes those items necessary for the performance of a mitzvah, but not a base Knesset, which only enables. The Ram disagrees and maintains that the nature of Kedusha base Knesset is somewhat at a base in Mikdash, it's Tashmisha Kedusha. So the Ram quotes the Ramban. The Ramban says a shul is Tashmisha mitzvah, but the Ram disagrees and says a shul is Tashmisha Kedusha. What, the, what are they disagreeing about? So that's what the Rav said, that a shul that has an arum that has a Sefer Torah is Tashmisha Kedusha. You see, that arum, the luchos, are what gave sanctity and holiness to the base of Mikdash. It's what gives sanctity and holiness. If you designate a clubhouse to daven, you can daven there three times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You designated the clubhouse, it doesn't have the Kedusha of a shul. If there's no arum that has a Torah in it, and that, that's what makes the definition of a shul. Just like the second base on Mikdash couldn't have Kedusha without the Luchos being present, albeit underground, so too it's not designated, it doesn't have the holiness of a shul, unless there is an Aron, and unless there is a Sefer Torah, that's what gives it, that's what gives it its sense of a, its sense of a holiness. So Ramban says, what is the purpose of this Mishkan that we're talking about? The whole Mishkan is to create a presence an intense presence of Hashem, a continuity of the experience, the revelation, the connection that began at Har Sinai. So let's get back. V'yikhu li. Why not v'yitnu li? Rashi says, it has to be li lishmi. Rav Hirsch says the word shruma, what's the root of the word shruma? Latrom to give, to donate, shruma, a donation, a pledge. Rav Hirsch writes, the root of the word shruma is resh vav mem, rom. What does that word mean? To lift. Because v'yikuli truma, when you give a truma, when you take money, money is mundane, it's profane. Money is material, it's physical, it's the embodiment of it. It's a commodity, it's a resource. But when you give it to the right place, you have lifted it. You have transformed it. You've used resources not to pursue the physical, but you've now given it a spiritual identity. It's a truma, it's rum. You've exalted, you've lifted it by transforming it for that purpose. And therefore, v'yikhu, who's really giving more? When you use your resources and money to help someone else, to help another cause, who's really the recipient or the beneficiary? You are, because you've taken your resources from just being mundane and profane, you've taken them from being transient and temporary, things that you can't take with you, to the fact that you gave them to make a difference, you've now acquired the result, the consequence, the benefit. So who's the real recipient of it? You've transformed it, truma, rome, you've lifted it, you've lifted yourself through what you've given. You know, we say in a base avel, a parak of Tehillim, that ends with uh, a song. What do we say? Ki In your death, you can't take everything. What should it say, the Malbim points out? Not, ki not in your death you can't take everything. In your death you can't take anything. Anything. You know that the tachrichim have no pockets. The men who wear a kittel know that a kittel inconveniently has no pockets. And do you know why that is? Because your kittel is what you're going to be buried in. The kittel are part of the tachrichim of every man. There are no pockets in the tachrichim. Not because you can't take everything. It's not their pockets. Whatever you can stuff in, whatever makes it in the coffin, that you can take with you. If you can't fit it in the coffin, you can't put your Ferrari in the coffin, it can't come. You can't put your whole wardrobe in the coffin, you can't fit your jewelry in the coffin, you can't take your Spartan collection. 
You can't take everything. You can't take anything, it should say. Says the mob, and that's not true. There are things you can take. You know what you can take? Here's the paradox. You can't take anything you've acquired for yourself. All you can take is what you gave away. You hear the paradox? You cannot take with you anything that you acquired. The only thing you can take is what you gave away. Because when your name is listed, I made a difference in Tom Shabbos. I made a difference in the Chesed Fund. I made a difference in the Yeshiva and the Kolo. I made a difference in the Girl Seminary. I made a difference in the Shul. I made a difference in the adult education. I made a difference in the Kirov movement. I made a difference in safety and securing my brothers and sisters in Israel. Whatever we gave away, the difference we made, the Yikhu, we've acquired that difference we made. And that's all we can take with us, says the Mabba. I should really do an appeal for the Shul right now, for the new campus. Such a waste. <laughs> but that's why we have the word v'yikhu. You think you're giving. You think you're giving. But you're not giving. V'yikhu, you are receiving. Because all the things that you can buy with your money, that you can fill your home with, that you can fill your belly with, that you can wear draping off of you, all those things you can't take with you. They're temporary, they're transient, they're fleeting. The only thing that we can acquire that comes with us is the money we gave away are the differences that we made, is the impact that we have, and therefore, v'yichu, it's what, we, it's what we take. That's why the Pasuk is formulated in this way. Good. But I want to share with you one last interpretation of Revolba. And this is really going to transform the whole attitude towards Yiddishkeit. It's everything. It's everything about our Yiddishkeit. Why does the Torah say v'yichu, it should say v'yichu? The Gemara Kedushan Dav Zayin tells us a fascinating halacha. The halacha is that a chassan and a kala stand on the chuppah. What exactly enacts their marriage? What is it that makes them betrothed to one another? So Aisha nicknames b'shlosha drachem. We know kesef sharabiyah. We have the practice of kesef. The man gives the woman something of value. We have the universal practice today for it to be a ring and for it to be a ring that doesn't have a stone. Because Tosus Deren Kedushim points out if it's a ring with a stone and she thinks, wow, look at the 17 carat. This guy spent on me, it's unbelievable. Absolutely, I'll be married to this rich knacker. It turns out it's a cubic zirconium he got online in the middle of the night. And the thing is barely worth a pruta. So Tosfos says, once you start introducing a stone, you're going to have a problem of Gamir's das. She assumes it's worth X. It's really worth a fraction of X. Did she really enter this commitment, this betrothal, without really a full intent? because she doesn't really understand its value, and therefore universally we have the practice of no stone. It could be a ring of any metal material, silver, platinum, gold, whatever you want, more than it's a shava pruta. It's gotta be worth more than a penny, but keep it simple so everyone can be on the same page of what it is. So the man gives him, says, I'm here by giving you this ring to be betrothed to me according to the laws of Moses and Israel. And the moment she accepts the ring on her finger, they are hereby betrothed. He has to give her kesef, shava kesef, something either money or the equivalent, the value of money, a shava puta. He has to give it to her. There's a big halacha question today. It's not really a halacha question. It's really a simple halacha question about the double ring ceremony. It's become more popular today that egalitarianism, equality, he gave her a ring, but that doesn't look right. He's acquiring her. She should give him a ring. He should have to accept the ring from her. 
And that's not halachically proper, because that's not how a halacha happens. There's nothing wrong halachically with a man wearing a wedding band. There's no begad shaila, it's something which is accepted in society today. There's no halacha question of a man wearing a wedding band. But whenever I officiate, and that's asked of me, I always say, it's a beautiful gift for the yichud room. Right after the chuppah, dance back to the yichud room, and you give him his ring in the yichud room. It's a beautiful gift to give there, and you can both come out of the yichud room, each wearing their ring. Everyone at the wedding will know you're both taken. Nobody will hit on either of you. You're both wearing the ring. You're good to go. You're good to go. But under the chuppah, it's improper because the double ring <coughs> distorts the ceremony. It gives the impression that what creates the bond is that each accepted a ring. That's not the halacha. The halacha is Haisha Niknes. He gives. Does that put the man in a superior position? Absolutely not. He's offering the ring. In fact, like in all of life, it puts the woman in a superior position because he's offering a gesture, he's asking for something, and the ball's in her court whether to say yes or no. Halacha doesn't coerce Ba'akorcha that she has to accept the ring. We can't force a woman to be married. He says, here's a ring, everyone holds their breath. And if she doesn't put out the finger to receive the ring, that's it. They're not married. He's not in any superior position over her. In fact, he's the one making himself vulnerable, putting himself on the line, making this gesture saying, will you marry me? And she could very easily say no. So the halacha, the Gemara Kedushin says, Hareah, he has to give her the ring. He has to give her. There's one exception. There's one exception where if she gives something to him, they are married through her act of giving something to him. What is it? What is it? When the man who's accepting the gift is someone who's held in such a high regard that the fact that he accepted her gift gives her pleasure. If he is someone of such distinction and prominence, someone held in such esteem, that when he publicly is willing to receive the gift from her, there's a tovas hana'a. She gets the benefit, which is the equivalent of a monetary value, of the fact that she can say, you know, did, did you see the president wearing the, the watch I gave him? Did you see this celebrity, this athlete, this famous person, this wealthy person, this powerful person? Did you see that that's the gift I gave him? There is a benefit, arguably a tangible benefit, from when someone who's of place of prominence or esteem accepts or receives a gift that you, that you gave them, that you gave them. So that pleasure that she derives from the fact that this man of great distinction, most of us under the chuppah. Who are we already? We're so pathetic. There's no tovah sana. We have to give her something. She would get no such joy. She would not be showing off to the world the thing that she gave us that we would be wearing, that you know, we benefited. But if the man is of such distinction, such esteem, that she draws a tovah sana from the fact that he accepted her gift, that enacts the, the kedushin. Says Revol, but based on this halacha, listen to this. It's going to change the way you view Yiddishkeit. Listen to what Revol says. The Torah is implying that when you give a donation and Hashem accepts it, the real recipient is the donor. The tovas hana we get, the pleasure, the joy, the prominence, the esteem that we have, the tangible benefit that we get, that we can say, Hashem accepted a gift we gave Him. When we daven, when we learn Torah, when we do a mitzvah, we tend to think that we did Hashem a favor. We did it for Him. He asked it of us. He needs it. We did it for Him. But that outlook is entirely inaccurate. It's incorrect. And it's a terrible disservice. Hashem doesn't need anything. He's infinite, omnipotent, He's perfect. He doesn't ask it from us for Him. But rather, He gives us the opportunity to learn as Davin. He gives us the opportunity to give Him so that we could benefit. So that we could benefit. 
You know, when that person of great esteem and prominence is willing to accept that gift, they're willing to receive that gift, you're the one who's going to go home and tell the world you gave that prime minister, that president, that world leader, that powerful person a gift. They're doing you the favor by their willingness to accept the gift. And the more powerful they are, the more wealthy they are, the more prominent they are, the less they actually need your gift. They could have gotten their gift a gazillion times over. They don't need it. Their willingness to accept it is really a favor and gift to you. Hashem's willingness to accept our Torah, our davening, our mitzvos is the ultimate gift He's giving us. That we're allowed to feel like we gave the infinite. We made contact with the infinite. It says, Revol B'dath P'sha'at in the Pasuk in Tehillim, in Perak Hei, V'ani barov chasdecha, avo beisecha. Hashem, only with all of your chesed was I able to come to your home. You enabled me to visit your home. You gave me the biggest gift. You gave me the biggest gift. The benefit is solely ours. And that's why the Pasuk says, not v'yidnu, that's why the Pasuk says, v'yikhu. Okay, let's move on. We're still on the same Pasuk, don't get too excited. Me'ez <laughs> kol, from whom are we taking each of these gifts? Me'ez kol, asher yidvenu libo. Me'ez kol what? Me'ez kol ish, from every man. Are we using the term here, ish, specifically? From every man as opposed to a woman? Is there a gender bias? Absolutely not. Ishir is used generically. Of course, it means from all men and women. In excuse me. In fact, we know that women were especially praised and rewarded. They had an extraordinary alacrity and zeal when they donated to the Mishkan, much more than the men. And the women are rewarded for their willingness to give. They gave much more freely. So then why is the word Ishir used? If it's not to exclude women, Ish means everyone. Couldn't the Pasuk have just said what? Take a donation, a pledge from anyone who gives with their generous heart. What is the word Ish adding here? What is the word Ish adding here? The Zohar Kadosh makes an amazing comment on the word Ish. From whom is Moshe soliciting? To whom is this appeal directly? Whose gifts are the most precious? Whose donations is Hashem craving and looking for? Says the Zohar, not just anyone. Me'ez kol ish. Hashem specifically finds it precious. He's turning to and craves the gifts of an ish. Says the Zohar, ish refers to a person who has struggled and prevailed. To the individual who living their ordinary life is extraordinary. Ish means go collect from the triumphant soul. The person whose life is filled with small victories, not large, momentous, transformational moments. Ish means the Mishkan is built from the small victories of the every man, not from the wealthy, the powerful. Hashem wants the Mishkan to be built by those who struggle or who hesitate to give, but overcome that urge. Those who persevere. The greatest contribution comes not from the checkbook, from our soul. The greatest contribution we give is our willingness to endure and to persevere with resiliency and fortitude. What's the purpose of the Mishkan after all? V'shachanti b'socham. Hashem's mission in building this Mishkan is to make a house for Hashras HaShchina. What does that mean? A place of Hashras HaShchina. So Chief Rabbi Sachs explains the root of the word Shechina is Shachin. What's a Shachin? Mishnah says, be a shachin tov, be a good neighbor. A shachin is a neighbor, is the person who lives next door. You understand now the transition? This is the secret to understanding the rest of the book of Shemos. 
Who has God been until now? The Jewish people have been introduced. All those Makos and Kriyas Yamsuf, they weren't there for power, they weren't there for the Mitzram, they were there for the Jewish people. The Jewish people who were living in a world, the Hasidic Rebbe say that Golas is Silak Hadas. Golas is when you lose knowledge, perspective. When you're living in servitude, when you're living in slavery, backbreaking labor, you have no room and no space and no margin to think and to be and to discover and to worship. Silak Hadas. We were just robots, automated figures, just getting through the day, trying to survive. And when we, when we were liberated, the Sila Kadas, we acquired Da'as, and the greatest Da'as is discovering Hashem. So the 10 plagues in the Kriyas Yamsuf was to introduce God to the Jewish people. And Hashem had a whole curriculum for doing it. We skipped that Kliyakar a few weeks ago. I gave you homework. I wonder if any of you did it. Do it in time for Pesach. You'll have something beautiful to say at the Seder. But the, the 10 plagues are not random. They are a curriculum. They're an education about how to find Hashem. First to Hashem altogether, then Hashem who interacts with the world. Rabbi Yehuda, who creates this acronym from the Makos, he divides them into three, 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 and four. That's his big contribution. We sit at the Seder and we sing, Dam Tzvardeya, we take it out, beautiful. And then, oh, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda used to call them the Tzach Hadash, Uah. Do you have to be a Rabbi Yehuda to be able to figure out an acronym? What's his contribution? The way he grouped them, says the Kliyakar, is he's understanding and revealing what was the curriculum, what were these makos trying to communicate? What were they educating? What was the pedagogy behind it? Says the Kliyakar. So the Jewish people were discovering Hashem. And who was the Hashem we discovered on our way out of Egypt? This mighty, powerful, distant God who could intervene and interrupt nature who can make the sea split, a God who instilled a fear and an awe, not only in the Egyptians, Yisro heard and the whole world heard, we say in Az Yashir. So the God they were introduced to at this point, until now, is a mighty, powerful, distant God. And now Hashem says, now that you know me, now that you know I'm here, and now that you know, not only do I know about your life, but I'm intimately involved in your life, I want a different relationship. I don't want to be that distant, abstract, far away, mighty, powerful God who instills and evokes awe and fear. You know who I want to be? Your neighbor. <laughs> I want to be your next neighbor. I don't know if he changed his shoes or I don't know what he did, but all of us show him. He said, I want to be your neighbor. Says Rabbi Sachs, Milashan Shachin. It's a relationship with Hashem, not mighty, powerful, distant, abstract, inaccessible. It's a relationship with Hashem, the Shechina. Shechinte. He's my Shachin. He's my neighbor. He's my next door neighbor. He's here. It's not the thunder and the lightning of the giving of the Torah. It's not the might of the splitting of the sea. It's not the awe and the fear of the ten plagues. He says, I want to come down and be your neighbor. But he says, first you have to build me a home. I can't be your homeless neighbor. I don't want to remain in concept and in theory. I don't want you searching for me. Build me a home. And the building blocks of that home that we make for him to be our neighbor, the building blocks of when we invite him to be in our lives, are not laid with thunder and lightning and great revelation. They're not given with fanfare or spotlight or a viral headline or a celebration. They are the ordinary obstacles in life. You know, when you didn't want to give that stuck up, but you gave it, Hashem became your shachi. He was your neighbor. He was watching and he was clapping. He was proud. 
And when you wanted to watch something, but you didn't watch it, you wanted to say that Lashon but you didn't say it, and you wanted to go to that place, and you wanted to do that thing, and you wanted to eat that thing, and you didn't, he's your shachim. He's living right here, he's not up there, he's not far away, he's right down here. He's right down here. He is our, he is our shachim. Shechinta, the shechina, because Barbara says, I want a dira betachtonu. In the Kabbalistic language, the language of Chazal, because Barbara says, I want dira betachtonim. I want to find a dwelling place down here. I don't just live in the holy and far away, but I am down here. My brother shares, when, when you learn with your kids in Israel, it's a totally different experience than in America. If you're learning with your children here and you say, Hashem wanted dira betachtonim, he wanted to live down here, they say, fine. But when you tell your kids in Israel, Hashem wants dira betachtonim, they start to giggle. Some of you can figure that out. And then you have to explain that's not what tachtonim means. It means in the here and now, in the everyday, in the act of eating. That's what the Kiddush Baruch is. The Elyonim versus the tachtonim, not the other kind of tachtonim. He wants dira betachtonim, sashchina. And that's what the secret, the name of the parasha, Truma, is a contribution. Hashem says, I want the ordinary, average, everyday, make your contribution to me. You know what you make your most ordinary contribution? So many more things I want to get to, but I'll just tell you this, this tangent for a moment. You know where you make this ordinary contribution? In the way that we eat. Rav Avram Shore, Rav Avram Shore in Brooklyn, has a phenomenal insight this week's parasha. The Shulchan, which is one of the kalim of the Beis HaMikdash, and the Shulchan, which is through which we earned Kapara, and the Shulchan, which housed the showbread that were there, Tamid, that were there consistently, that had to always be there. They represent the source of panasa, of material, physical blessing in our life. By the way, that was, there was a crown surrounding the Shulchan, because there had to be a boundary, there has to be a border. We can't indulge in a way which is boundaryless or borderless, but it has to be disciplined. There has to be a boundary to our table and to what we eat on it. And today, when we no longer have the shulchan, we no longer have a beis hamikdash or a mishkan, shulchan shall adam mechaper. Our table is what earns us. Rabbeinu Bachia on our parsha quotes a custom. Rabbeinu Bachia, medieval Spanish commentary says that in his time, people used to be buried in their dining room table. You would disassemble the dining room table in order to make a coffin, and a person was buried in their dining room table. Why? Because your dining room table would come with you upstairs and testify on your behalf. And the dining room table would say, I, you know how many hosts, you know how many guests he hosted, she hosted around me? Do you know the Devere Torah, the Zemiros? They said, they sang around me, or God forbid it would testify the opposite. Do you know how empty I sat because they never had anyone other than themselves? Do you know the kind of lush and hara I had to endure and listen to? Unless you think that that's an ancient custom dating only all the way back to Rabbeinu Bachaya, the Ragachever gong. We spoke about the Ragachever when we did our, our class about Rabbi Taitz. Because Rabbi Taitz really was so instrumental in saving the manuscripts of the Ragachever and Tzachmas Paneach and printing them and publishing them and really spreading his Torah. The Ragachever was buried in his own dining room table. The table that he sat at, the desk that he learned at, that he poured over at, that he wrote his Chidushi Torah at, that was the Minag. Shulchan Shal Adam is Mechaper. What is it about the Shulchan that's Mechaper? So he points out, Rav Avim Shur, he says, you know, what was the first mistake man ever made? Why were we expelled from Gan Eden? The act of eating. Because that was the first act, the first sin, the way we atone for it, the way we're masakin for it, is through eating. What expresses our freedom when we got out of Egypt? 
We were given Rosh Chodesh, but the first real tangible mitzvah that we were given is the Korban Pesach. Pesach Matzah Maror. Mitzvahs having to do with eating. Be disciplined. You have to eat a kezayis. Minimum measure. Don't eat Pesach Hatzos. You have to eat Dafikom by Hatzos. Everything about Pesach has to do with eating, because freedom is our attitude towards eating. If you're disciplined in your eating, you're a free person. And if you're undisciplined in your eating, you are still a slave. Achila. What's the Hebrew word we mentioned re recently? The Hebrew word for bread is? The Hebrew word for war is? Milchama. Lechem. Our attitude towards food is the biggest battle, it's the biggest war that we face. I don't just mean the carbs. I don't just mean bread. I mean food. Says David HaMelech, Tarach Lafanai Shulchan, Neged Tzorurai. Says Rav Avmashor, you know where Neged Tzorurai, you know when I'm standing opposite my enemies? When Tarach Lafanai Shulchan, when I'm sitting at the table. When I'm looking at that food, seconds and thirds and portions, and what am I eating? When am I Neged Tzorurai? When I'm Tarach Lafanai Shulchan. Achila is the place, Lechem, Nechama, we're masaking the Chet of Eitz Korban Pesach, real freedom. So here's an example, Ish, Me'ez kol Ish, an ordinary person, when you persevere and you don't eat the wrong thing, and you make a bracha before and you eat the right measure, and you take care of yourself in the area of Achila, Kiddush b'makam su'uda, you know where you achieve Kedusha? B'makam su'uda. And your attitude towards eating and towards food is where we find sanctity and holiness, it's where we express freedom, is our attitude towards food. We got a lot to work on. Unfortunately, the more Hamish you are, often the less disciplined you are. But that's not the Torah way. Torah doesn't only mean to regulate kashras of what we eat, but the kashras of how much we eat, and how often we eat, and so on and so forth. That's really what the Torah is trying to cultivate within us. That's the v'yikhuli truma. A truma. When you wanted to eat that, but you didn't, you gave a truma to Hashem. And v'yikhuli, you were the beneficiary, you received. And then he became a shaching. He became a neighbor. He became right next door to us. It's the ordinary, the ish. Ish is the name that we use for the ordinary. Me'ez kol ish. It's the ordinary people who really create the extraordinary reality, who build the extraordinary mishkan and besan mikdash. Okay. We have time for one more thing, even though there's 20 more things. But we have time for one more. Urgh. Let's go to Pasuk. Perachafei Pasuk of Beis. V'no'arati l'chasham, the first of the kalim that we encounter in Parashat Shruma is the Aram. Is the Aram. All the teachings of Parashat Shruma are really designed to express not a physical building that we no longer have, or physical furniture, but they are a blueprint for our lives. And that's the famous, we all know, V'yasu b'mishka v'shachanti b'socham. It should say b'socho. Why does it say b'socham? in all of us. And the Nefesh HaChaim of Chaim Velazhner, in Nefesh HaChaim, Perak Dalad, Sha'al of Perak Dalad, has a beautiful essay about this, about the Mishkan and the Mikdash, are kol ha-kochos va-ulamos v'chosidrei When we study the whole second half of Shemos, lest you think, oh boy, we just left the fun narrative with its interesting Divrei Torah, and now we got Shuma, Tetzava, okay, Kisi, so we get a little break again, and then, uh, and then Vayaka Bukudei. Details and measurements and, and, and um, materials. And, uh, no. It says the Nefesh Chaim, 
This is not something which is irrelevant or outdated. This is the blueprint for our lives. Listen to his language. The blueprint of the Mishkan is the blueprint of your life. The parochas that separates the Kodesh from the Kodesh HaKadoshim, says the Chaban, is the parochas that should separate your head from your heart. Everything about the Mishkan is an example. The Aram, the Aram was made from acacia wood, and it was layered with gold on the inside and the outside. Now I understand gold on the outside. You want it to look nice and pretty. Why do you need gold on the inside? We learn from here, kol tamachacham she'in tochu kaboro. Any tamachacham whose inside doesn't match their outside, they're fake, they're no good. <coughs> your inside has to match your outside. You can't be duplicitous or hypocritical. You can't say one thing and do another thing. You can't present yourself on the outside and in private act another way. So the aram, which represented Torah, means it has to be tochu kaboro. Those wanting the daf know we saw this in brachos. What daf? You're doing zikru, the symbols? Daf koach, chavches, the strength. Rabbi Gamliel said, Rabbi Gamliel put a shomer at the door of the base medrash. And he said, anyone who's not tochu kaboro, anyone who's not, their inside doesn't match their outside, they're not consistent, can't come in the base medrash. Rabbi Gamliel was taken down from his position as the Nasi. He was replaced by Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. That's the place of the great storage. And Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah took away this guard and said, anyone who wants in the base medrash, come in. We don't care if you're on a growth path and you're not yet there that you're Tohoku Gaboro, everyone's invited. And that day they had to add hundreds or thousands of benches and chairs because there were so many people who were disqualified previously who now were allowed to enter the base medrash once we lowered the standard for entry. Who was this guard? Who was in charge of examining someone Tohoku Gaboro? I saw a beautiful Hasidic Shavor. He says there was no guard. You know what there was? The door. The Gemara says the door was closed and there was a guard and only those who were Tochel Kaboro could enter. You know who the guard was? The door. The door was stuck. The door was hard to open. Only those who really wanted to be there got in. That's what it means. Nobody was, nobody was giving this moral test to determine who was Tochel Kaboro. It means it wasn't easy to get in and only those who were really determined, that was itself revealed that they really wanted to be there. So the Aaron is a message about Tochu Kabaro, our inside has to match our outside. You have to be consistent in life. You can't be a faker. You can't just be a Yerushamayim Begaloi. I'm a chul, I shuckle and I shuckle and I talk a big language and I give Musr and then Beseser when I'm all alone. Tochu Kabaro, inside and outside. So there's gold on the inside in addition to on the outside. So why don't you have gold all the way through? Why don't you have wood? It was a very interesting wood that we had. What was the kind of wood that we had? Bear with me a couple more minutes. What was the kind of wood? Acacia wood. What's special about this wood? So, the Torah tells us, shitim was 24 species of cedar. I'd say shitim, cedar wood. And the Medrash makes an amazing comment. The Medrash Tanchuma here in Parashas Truma. It says, the world is unworthy of cedar, but Hashem made an exception and created cedar just for the purpose of the Mishkan and later for the Beis HaMikdash. What does this mean? We quoted one Rabbi Sachs, we quote another different Rabbi Zachs, Rabbi Menachem and Zion Zachs. Menachem Tzion. You know, I, I enjoy his Torah greatly. His grandchildren live in our community and great-grandchildren. The Gemara comments, Mesech Tanis Tav Chof. 
A person should always be soft like a reed and never rigid like a cedar. Always be soft like a reed and not rigid like a cedar. What does that mean? Be flexible, be pliable. Just go with the flow. Don't be rigid, don't be demanding. Be flexible, just go with the flow. Just go with the flow. Don't be like a cedar. A cedar tree is rigid. A, a, uh, a reed is soft and it bends and it's flexible. Be soft, bend, be flexible, go with the flow in life. If you're rigid, what happens, by the way, we saw it when we suffered Lenu hurricanes in the past, right? The, the palm trees all survived the hurricane. Because you watch them sway with the wind, they almost turn to a 90 degree angle and they pop back up and they were just fine. And what happened to the, what were the other kind of trees? Ficus trees? They all, they all just toppled over. Why? Because their trunk is rigid. The other difference is they have very shallow roots. When you have shallow roots, you topple right over when you face a wind. If you have deep roots and you're flexible, then you could withstand the wind. We saw, and that's the Gemara and Tainus' injunction to us, be soft as a reed, don't be rigid as a, as a cedar. And yet, the cedar also had a role. And what was that role? The cedar's role was here in the, in the Mishkan. Rashi, at the beginning of Truma, Perachafei Pasuk Hei, go back to Perachafei Pasuk Hei, Rashi here tells us, a very interesting question. Where in the world, where in the world, in the desert, did the Jewish people find all these cedar trees? Where are there cedar trees in the desert? Yaakov anticipated they would one day build a Mishkan. Yaakov took these cedar saplings with him into the desert and planted them. And Yaakov prophetically ensured that when the time came and they needed them, they would have these cedar plants. Great. Great. But the Medrash and Barishas Rabbah tells us that these cedar trees had an even more ancient history. Not just dating back to Yaakov. According to the Medrash, the Torah tells us that Avram planted an Eishel in Beersheva, he planted an Eishel in Beersheva. It says that Avram planted cedar trees. And those were the trees that Yaakov cut down, took with him in the desert, replanted so the Jewish people would have them in order to build the Mishkan. What's going on over here, Esther Menachem Tzion, Rabbi Tzion Sachs? Really, you're supposed to be soft as a reed, not rigid as a cedar. And yet here we're using cedar tree in the Mishkan. And where do we get these cedar trees in the Mishkan? Where were they in the desert? They were from Yaakov. Where did Yaakov get them from? He got them from Avram. What's going on over here? So he says, you see, when the Gemara tells us that you should always be soft and flexible like a reed, it means in your interpersonal dealings. Don't stand on ceremony. Don't be arrogant. Don't be envious. Don't be angry. Just be flexible. Just go with the flow. But when should you be rigid as a cedar? In Yanei HaMishkan. When it comes to your religious convictions, when it comes to your religious principles, when it comes to who you are, you need to be as rigid as a cedar. And who planted that in us? The same Avram who taught us a predisposition towards chesed. The same Avram who said, be flexible when it comes to people, just let it go. Is the same Avram who planted the cedar tree that Yaakov then took and planted for Klal Yisrael that they then used and embedded in the Mishkan and said, when it comes to religion, be principled, have convictions, be stubborn, because if you're going to be wishy-washy and flexible, you're going to snap in half. You're going to blow with the wind. You're going to disappear. When it comes to our religious convictions, don't be soft like a reed. Be rigid. 
and stubborn like a cedar. And that's why that wood is used throughout the Caleb and the Mishkan. I wanted to cover one last thing, which we don't have time, but I'll give you a hint. V'no'adati l'cha, perech hafei pasach beis. I was going to tell you a beautiful vort that we heard from Rav Zinger. We had the privilege of hosting Rav Dov Zinger this Shabbos, the uh, Rosh Hashiv of Makor Chayim in Gush Etzion. Pasuk describes the Kapora. V'no'adati l'chasham v'dibarti itcha mi'ala kaporas m'bein shnei akruvim asher al-aron ha'edos eskol asher atzavei ha'zchal b'nei Yisrael. Hashem says, on top of the Aron are these kruvim, these cherubs, angelic childlike figurines, their wings spread up and spread out. And Hashem says, I will speak to you from between those two kruvim. That is the point from which you will hear my voice speaking to you. Vino'adati, that word vino'adati is an important word. Vino'adati, it's a, it's, a, it's a meeting place, a rendezvous point. That's where we'll rendezvous. And I will speak to you, me'ala kaporas. You'll hear me coming from on top of the Aram, from between those two kruvim. Why is that significant? Why is that significant? So Rav Zinger shared, and I have the sources, I wish I could go through them with you. That is the essence of tefillah. If you look at the halacha, we make the mistake of thinking, wherever you are in the world, you have to daven towards where? Eretz Mizrach. No, not necessarily. Only if you're west, you daven to the east. If you're east, you have to daven to the west. But that in itself is a mistake. We don't daven just towards the direction of Eretz Yisrael. If you look at the sources and you look at the halacha, you'll see it's much more zoomed in than that. We don't just daven towards Eretz Yisrael, we daven towards Yerushalayim. And Yerushalayim, you don't just daven towards Yerushalayim, you daven towards the Makom HaMikdash. And you don't just daven towards the Makom HaMikdash, you daven towards the Kodesh HaKadashim. And to where do you direct your tefillos? You're going on this flying through the air journey every time you daven. And where are they directed, your tefillos? They're directed towards? Between the kaporas, over the Aron and the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Rav Zinger said, you know, really we should have eyes on top of our head. We're looking up, but we're not. When we daven, we're looking Why? People make the mistake of looking down, but you're not looking down. You're looking, you have to create mental image in your own mind's eye that right now as I begin my daven, I take my three steps forward, I am where? Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim, Makam HaMikdash, Kodesh Kadashim. I'm looking at that space between the Kaporos. What's the significance of bringing me there? Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. You can hear me from everywhere. Said Rav Zinger because of this Pasuk. V'dibarti kaporos. When we daven, we're not just talking to God. We're there to listen to Him talking to us. Davening is the experience of hearing the voice of Hashem within ourselves. It's creating a stillness and a silence to be able to hear the voice of Hashem, namely the chilek elokam mima'al mamash, the peace of God that is inside us. We're not just talking to Him, we come to Davin to have a dialogue, not a monologue. We don't just come to talk to Him, we come to silence and interrupt our lives to be able to listen to Him. From where does He speak to us? It's from on top of the kaporas, that's where He speaks to us from. The Ibn Rechayim, the vision says, Sham, the word sham, shin mem, is an acronym for shalom mevorach, which is Shabbos Kodesh. Shalom, when you say Shabbat shalom, shalom mevorach, miyad v'no'arati l'cha. Where can you find Hashem? What's the rendezvous point with Hashem? The Heilige Shabbos. Come to, come to find Hashem on Shabbos, and you come to that intimate rendezvous point where you not only can talk to Hashem, you can hear Him talking to you as well. Have a wonderful day.